You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. What do you think you're doing, Erica? It may be your mission. But this is the CIA's plane. It doesn't take off without my say-so. We need reliable intelligence, and we need it now. Uh, this scenario is precisely why the IMF exists. The IMF is Halloween, Alan. A bunch of grown men in rubber masks playing trick-or-treat. And if he had held on to the plutonium in Berlin, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And his team would be dead. Yes, they would. That's the job. And that's why I want one of my own men on the scene to appraise the situation. Agent Walker, special activities. His reputation precedes. You use a scalpel. I prefer a hammer. My man goes, or no one goes. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, will be to listen to this episode. This episode will self-destruct in... No, I'm just kidding. This is Matt with uh, the 602 Club. So excited to be here. I think everybody knows what we are talking about here. Uh, We're going to be talking about Mission Impossible Fallout. Uh, And I am really excited uh, tonight to have two incredible people here to talk about this with me. One is none other than our Bond aficionado, Christy Morris. How's it going, Christy? I'm back. I'm ready. I know, and and I was like, I, I was like trying to think, like, who should I have on to talk? I was like, I should get somebody who likes spy stuff, and I was like, mm-hmm. well, Christy, duh. Uh, so and so, of course, I decided to watch through all six movies in four days. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I'd seen the so first see- one and the third one before, but I was like, yeah. I, I've got to do it all. So you've got it all fresh. Um, I have not seen the first one. Or the second one in a dog's age. So, um, yeah, it's been a long time. Um, but I'm also really excited that we have with us. Um, she's She's been here before, and you will know her all over Trek FM, the fabulous Brandy Jackla. Cool. I like fabulous. Thank you. I'm very excited to talk about this movie. <laughs> um, no, welcome back. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Well, I, uh, I'm a, I mean, this one, uh, I think we are, um, we're going to have a lot to talk about. I don't normally do this, um, but I do want to recommend if this is a movie that you do like, um, and you would like to hear more about the making of the movie, uh, because there's so much behind the scenes stuff and it's fascinating. Listen, um, but I'm going to recommend to you another podcast, which is the Empire Podcast, and they have a spoiler specials that they do. And the episode, as we're recording this, their first spoiler special, there will be a second, with um, the director, Christopher McQuarrie, clocks in at about 2.45. And they will have a second that I think he said goes about three hours uh, with Christopher McQuarrie. Yes. So, I mean, epic, epic, epic. If you like behind-the-scenes 
of what it's like to make a movie. And I mean, Christopher McQuarrie is so open and so honest about everything that went behind the scenes of this film and how they did it. Um, you know, why certain things you may have seen in the trailers weren't it. I mean, just it is a phenomenal listen. So I, I don't normally do that. But I just I feel like this is one where you should totally listen to it um, because if you like you know behind the scenes stuff, this is actual I mean this is like gold uh, and I I was eating it up listening to it today so I had so much fun I can't wait for the second one to drop so I highly encourage you to do that but there are a few other things that I want to encourage you with one hit us up on with a star rating review over on iTunes at itunes.com slash checkfm. Uh, it's been a while since the 602 Club has felt the review love. So let us let let us let us hear your thoughts and then we'll call you out on the show and thank you for your review and read what you had to say about the show. Uh, you can follow us all over the place on different social media platforms. One is Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We also have a listeners only discussion group and if you like talking to other people who listen to Track FM. If you want to hear their thoughts about and see their thoughts by reading them on Facebook, you can go over to Facebook.com. Of course, you can go over to Facebook.com slash Track FM. But the listeners only discussion group is called the Babel Conference. So if you're on Facebook, type Babel in the search field there. Or you can go over to our website at Trek.fm. Every single show page has a little button that says discussion. That will also bring you over to the group so you can talk to everyone. And... Last but not least, uh, you can find us uh, by sending us an email. We got a wonderful email from a listener recently. Um, just want to call them out and thank them for sending us the email. It's been it had been a while um, since we had gotten one, and uh, it was really cool. Uh, you know, just getting to hear their thoughts, and um, they wanted to say how much they really enjoyed the show, uh, but they also. Um, wanted to mention that they they really liked the uh, Close Encounters episode that we did, and then they thought maybe it would be great uh, if we did maybe E.T. and War of the World. So Russell really keeping that in mind now, and definitely something we can do. The response we got uh, just numbers-wise from the, that episode was incredible. So uh, absolutely uh, might put those on the calendar soon. So thank you so much for sending that. And if you want to send an email, again, track.fm slash contact, choose a show, uh, again, the 602 Club. So... Ladies, I wanted to ask you, Chrissy, we got a little bit of your mission history, but um, just kind of your perspective. I, I'm really interested, Chrissy, to hear what you thought kind of blazing through all six films in four days. What what became your general impression then of the Mission Impossible saga? Sure. So I'll definitely say being a, a lifetime Bond fan, the biggest thing that I wanted to see for myself was how did Mission Impossible set itself apart from James mm. Bond? Because they're very similar. I mean, they're both about agents that are on missions. Um, but the thing that I feel like really makes Mission Impossible stand so far apart in a good way, A, is the gadgets they depend so much more on the technology than Bond ever does. You know, really Bond's um, core is his, you know, he's always got his PPK. He's always good at, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat with someone. And he's got great wits about him. And he kind of relies more on himself than he does on the gadgets that Q provides him. Um, you know, he's got a guy for that if he needs it. But I feel like in all of the Mission Impossible movies, 
one, the masks are a big deal. And I noticed it wasn't until the third movie that they show how the masks are made. So I did feel like you're going through the first two movies going, okay, they keep pulling these masks out of nowhere and somebody's making them. How are they so accurate? (laughs) Well, they have a prop guy behind the scenes. It takes about three weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I thought that was great that they do that even in the sixth movie. Um, And then also I love talking about with this one, the new gadgets that we got where that now they have a screen that they can use to computerize uh, a hallway. Um, so like I said, I think the gadgets are the big difference. And then I think too, um, watching all the movies again in order, um, it really stood out to me that it's Ethan's story. Um, you don't have to watch all six in a row to get what's going on. I like that they can stand alone, but there is kind of a loose um, chronological story that happens. What about you, Brandy? Is this something where, um, you know, did you watch the original TV show at all? Oh, yes. You know, which also, of course, uh, you know, Leonard Nimoy was a part of. Yes. Oh, I was a huge Mission Impossible fan uh, from childhood. And there was even an 80s series revival that did not go so well. That I watched and it's kind of like you know. Battlestar nineteen eighty. Yep, you know, yeah. didn't go so well. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was the only thing the two series really had in common was Peter Graves. But I love Peter Graves, so I was I was down to watch any Mission Impossible, anything that Peter Graves was a part of. So I, yeah, I grew up watching the show. I still watch the show and enjoy it, even when. Every once in a while, there's an accent that just makes you go, "What are you trying to do?" Really, <laughs> really, Leonard, what are you trying to do? Are you Australian? Are you British? Are you Southern? Because I can't tell. But that doesn't matter because I just enjoy the show. And so when uh, this is confession time, I saw the first movie when it came out in 1996. Oh, me too. And, uh, awesome. And when it got to the end, I was absolutely furious that they made Jim Phelps into a traitor. And I'm like, oh, oh, Hell no, you did not just besmirch the good name of Mr. Jim Phelps. Oh no, you did not do that. And so that really actually left a very sour taste in my mouth. And it cast a pall over that entire film for me. And I have to admit, didn't like two, didn't like three. You know, I don't (laughs) think anybody liked two, honestly. (laughs) No, my Uh, boss loves it. Really? Yes. Really? It's his it was favorite. too overdramatic with the style, mm-hmm. but Tandy yeah, Newton it's, it's was definitely gold. more of a John Woo movie than it is actually a Mission yeah. Impossible movie. And so, but Tandy Newton. Tandy Newton, I know, but she refused to come back for number three. And yeah. so there was my favorite thing about Two Gone. But I, I had to be convinced to watch four, and I didn't see it in the theater. And my husband said, honey, you really like the director. A lot of people that we trust say that it's really quite good. And let's just give it a go, huh? And I said, okay. And I loved it. I loved it Hmm. with a passion. Hitherto unknown for this movie saga. And so from then, it's just been, yes, give me more. I want more. Thank you, please. I will have another. So I have. It's, so you liked Rogue Nation? Yes, I loved Rogue Nation because Rebecca Ferguson. Oh my word! Oh, so, we're going to talk about some Rebecca Ferguson. Oh, great, great! Yes. I love that woman so much. Love her. I don't care what she's in. I'll watch it. 
she's brilliant. But it's, it's one of those series of movies that kept, for me, kept getting better once they got past that hurdle mm-hmm. of the third movie for me. They just keep getting better and they keep coming back. They keep me coming back for more. And I think the only other person that has been in all of the movies, if I'm right, is Ving Rhames as Luther. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. the only other person that's been in every single one of them, whether it's even just a cameo or, you know, whatever. But he's been in every single one of them. I love me some And I noticed, Rames. too, there were some big cameos in three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Did you notice yeah. Aaron Paul mm-hmm. makes oh, yeah. an appearance? Oh, yeah. Isn't that <laughs> I was Julia's like, Wait a brother? Minute. Is that Julia's brother? I'm there. not sure. They never really explain that. Uh, sh- He's somebody, just like, I hope you're not mad at me because I'm here. <laughs> some guy hanging around. Well, like the, the three, the yeah. way three started off, I'm like, wait, what? What? I'm sorry. What? Who is this woman? So <laughs> anyway, but I have uh, I have nothing but joy in this series now because I just they just really got my attention in a good way, and I didn't think that was possible. So well done, mm. folks. Well done. And I'm glad to hear from someone who's watched the TV show because I had never seen the TV show. Oh, I, I love it. It's it's so campy, 60s and 70s, but it's still and, and the the masks are a big thing back then too. That is one oh. singular thing that has carried through to the movies that I love the the gadgets and the masks and the you know pretending to be somebody else and all of those things. Yes, it's just it's it's a beautiful homage now, and it's ramped up for the new millennium. So. I um I remember back in 96 going to see the original and uh I actually uh I almost broke my ankle running to get the newspaper uh from my friend's minivan mm-hmm. because that's the only way you could get movie times then was the newspaper. We had a number uh-huh. to call. <laughs> uh, so um and so we're running to to get the newspaper and, and I hit a hole in almost broke my ankle i still went to the movie that night and saw it um so yeah that 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 movie has some interesting things wrapped up into it but then you know i didn't i didn't like two i did like three i I thought jj did a great job with three Mm -hmm. and then it's it's interesting because it's it's one of the few franchises where i felt like ever since two it's just continually gotten better you know like three and then four is better and then five is better and so coming into this i'm ready for this uh, to be great, you know, like, because I, for me, at, at, you know, coming into this one, Rogue Nation was my favorite of the series, like, which is shocking mm-hmm. that number five would be your favorite in a series. That just does not happen. I mean, I don't know anybody whose favorite film is Star Trek V or Rocky V or, you know, it's like <laughs> when you start naming movies with fives in them, it doesn't usually go well. Sharknado Five, you know, like, so... um. What I thought was also really interesting about this movie and kind of the mission history behind it is that I, I felt like, you know, this movie does a great job of building off of all the rest of the films and using bits and pieces of that history to really create its story. You know, I mean, obviously we bring in Solomon Lane again. Um, we finally kind of answer the question about his marriage, um, which I thought was great um, because Tom Cruise mentioned the Christopher Quarry. People keep asking me about that. We need to address that finally. And mm-hmm. then, um, you know, just things like um, the White Widow's mother is Max, 
that from was the cool. first movie. You know, um, and so I really enjoyed this film because I love the way that the plot was weaving in and out of different parts of the you know Mission Impossible history, but then also telling this story like you said, Christy, that you you don't have to see the rest of them to understand what's happening in here. But if you have seen the rest of them, it adds so many different layers. That, And that's, I think, fan service done right. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was having this discussion with Patrick Devlin when we recorded Warp 5 last night, and he mentioned that he thinks he knows what the bar is for him on fan service. If you can watch a scene that has fan service in it, and people who have no idea that it's fan service still enjoy it and still understand it, that's fan service done right. And I think that's actually a pretty good meter by which which to measure fan service in general. And that's what this movie does. You don't have to know everything, but if you do, it's just, it just takes you to that next level. But anyone could come in and watch this movie off the street, not having any history with any of the rest of them, and still enjoy it. And still have all the pieces they need to understand the plot. Mm, yes. Yeah. Well, and that's something that, you know, Christopher and Corey, when I was listening to the interview, he said, you know, there have been some movies, he he didn't mention the names, but this year he said that uh, he had seen where they expected you to have seen the previous films and there were things in there that they weren't explicit about. And he said one of the things that we did in this movie was I needed this movie for you to understand everything that's going on without you having seen the other movies. So I needed to set up the fact that if you hadn't seen any other movies, Ethan had been married before, mm-hmm. you know? And so we needed to show that with Michelle Moynihan's character, Julia, you know, and, and to make that explicit in the story. So if you hadn't seen three, you knew exactly what was happening. And so I thought that that was really smart because I do feel like in many ways, with these franchise movies, we're getting to the point where we're making people have to have seen 30 different films to get whatever it is we're doing in this film. And that's not good movie making. That's good right. television making. That's not good movie making. Christopher Quarry definitely understands he's making a movie. He's not making a TV show. And so I really appreciated the fact that throughout the pro- plot here, everything that you need to understand what's happening here is told to you or shown to you. Um, uh, you know, the fact that they uh, use um, Ethan's fears with the dreams and everything to really make explicit what's going on with especially Julia and um, help even explain his relationship with Solomon Lane. So if you hadn't seen Rogue Nation, you understand he has a history with this villain and everything. So uh, I just, it's some really smart choices story-wise here with the plot that give you everything you need in this film to make it cohesive all in of its own. And yet, at the same time, like you were saying, Brandy, you got all these great fan service moments that if you don't get them, they're not hurting absolutely any part of the film. But if you get them, you're like, oh, Max, that's great. Yeah, first movie, that's awesome. You know, those kind of things. Or, you know, like, Benji getting to finally wear a mask, you know, uh, that kind of stuff where you're just like, okay, this is, this is great that we're, we're doing some of those things that help pay off some other things, you know, which for the most part, 
ended up coming mostly by accident, they said. You know, it wasn't necessarily always intentional, too. So I, I don't know. To me, this movie um, does such a good job of being a great movie. And, and that's very rare in franchise filmmaking these days. Agreed. It's difficult. What he did was an impossible mission all its own. Nice. Because <laughs> it's not I, easy I like to that. do. It's really not. It's, it was masterful, in fact, I would say. so. Well, and two, if you look back, it felt like the previous movies, um, it had a very clear definition early on of, okay, this is the bad guy, this is what he's trying to do, and this is what they're going to stop from happening. Whereas this film, that wasn't clear until much further into the movie, and I like that better, honestly, guessing the entire time. Uh, sorry, it was totally clear to me before the credits even rolled. <laughs> I knew, really? I, I knew who Lark was before the credits even started. And I did not no, read spoilers not or anything. I did not read any spoilers. I did not check any cast lists. I did nothing did of the know? sort. How <laughs> the, the How I knew is because he's the only unknown factor. From the rest of the cast, I'm like, and he's got a mustache, and he's got a mustache, so he looks very I mean, stern. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was, I was hoping that I was wrong, but I knew that I wasn't, and so I just felt when they and yeah. they're talking about Lark and how no one has been able to positively identify what he looks like or what his real name is. And I'm like, eh, that's Henry Cavill. See, you and my husband then have the same trait of being able to innately pick up on these things <laughs> and then always be right. It's, it's, and it drives me nuts because he gave away something for me for um, like in the middle of watching The Dark Knight Rises. Oh. Wasn't that the one where he climbs out of the hole? Uh-huh. Yeah. He was like, he's going to climb out of that hole. And I was like, shut up. Yeah. Well, <laughs> my yeah. husband used usually the same way. And we didn't really express it to each other until a scene later that happens with, um, oh gosh, the character's name, Walker. That's it. It was Walker, right? Henry Cavill's character, mm-hmm, yeah. when he hands uh, a phone to the CIA director. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, yeah. oh, oh, oh. And I lean over to my husband and he's like, yeah, I know it's not the right phone. So mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I thought too. Yeah. I did not, the first time I saw that, I didn't connect the phones. Oh, really? And, and part of that, it, and, and it wasn't, it wasn't, like once I saw it the second time, I was like, oh, okay. But I think part of it was one of the things that this movie does, and and uh, it's something that uh, McQuarrie talks a lot about in the interview, which I thought was great, which they learned just from editing some other films that he's done, and where you can take out these little tiny bits, you know, and it's that you grab the audience by the throat and you never let them go. Mm. And this movie kind of does that. It grabs you by the throat and it, it's like a Hitchcock film and it never lets you go. You know, like uh, I, this movie felt and, and, and it makes sense because, you know, he talked about the idea of Tom Cruise being a huge fan of, you know, these Hitchcockian type movies like North by Northwest and uh, that kind of stuff where it really it takes you for a ride. And And honestly, this movie feels so much like North by Northwest because there's all of these shifting alliances that are happening throughout the mm-hmm. film and you're getting these um you know double triple and quadruple crosses of people happening um you know whether it's the CIA director you know uh or uh you know Henry Cavill's character and the way he's turning and and you you even if you know if you're going with a story you kind of 
start to question like is Ethan really off his rocker here like you know so like they they do it in a way that allows you that if you're just fully in, engrossed in the film you can kind of start to buy certain things happening um yeah i i definitely was able to pinpoint that Henry Cavill is going to be the bad guy you know i um from the moment they were in the plane you know and he's just being a complete d-bag um you know i was like yeah he's just gonna be the bad guy and it, and it's because they do a great job at the very beginning there is just setting him up as this is not going to be a person that's going to be hunt's friend ever yeah. right you know like they're like he's always and, there to yeah. ke- you know check up on you yeah so um and i i felt like in some ways that's there's nothing wrong with that you know like having the lines clearly um drawn in the sand of who's who i thought that was great where i thought it was the the plot did a great job was in like you know um angela bassett's you know director of the cia and you'd just be like Mm -hmm. is she more involved with this than we think or or you know so that's where I thought the plot did such a great job of really moving with these characters and kind of shifting things around all the time so that you kind of are on a ride. I mean, I feel like I'm going a hundred miles an hour by the end of the film. I'm just like, (gasps) Mm -hmm. which is great. And, and that's the thing I think this film does really well too, is that created some great new characters. So let's, uh, before we get too far into everything, we should probably talk about them. We already mentioned Henry Cavill's August Walker. And, you know, I absolutely adore Henry Cavill. I think he's great as Superman. Um, and uh, he was fantastic. And I mean, just brilliant, I think, as uh, Napoleon Solo. Oh, yes. And mm-hmm. The Man from Uncle, so which good. is another great old TV show. Yes, which I also watched when I was a kid and still watch. And I've <laughs> we've been doing a slow rewatch of that show. I'd never seen it before, so it's not really a rewatch. But I thought he was such a great foil for Hunt. Oh, it was and, perfect. And, and, you know, him with the imposing figure above, you know, I mean, I think Tom Cruise is 5'7". Henry Cavill's like 6'2". Um, yeah. Built wow. like, you know, a, a, an, a, you know, a Greek god. An Adonis, um, so, is that what you're going to say? Yeah, an Adonis, <laughs> oh, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So I, but mm-hmm. his, his portrayal is so good because he does a great job of walking the line where you can think maybe he might be a good guy, and then he just keeps doing these things that confirm no, he he's not. And I just, I really loved it. Yeah, yeah, I love especially that it seems like he says more than once, "It's just business. It's nothing personal." Like I might kill you. It's nothing personal. <laughs> really? Like that whole scene in the bathroom, I do have to give a shout out that even the cast was making fun of the reloading your arm guns. <laughs> I love that. He's been doing this now on Good Morning America. He's like, okay, put your hands up like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, it's just, it's such a, I mean, you can, um, what's so great about that is it feels so organic to the character of just like this. I just got my ass kicked. Okay, I got to get back in it, you know? And it's like that yeah, movement shake it of up. trying to pump yourself up of like, okay, now I'm going to kick your ass, you know? like, And that, oh, God, that fight is just incredible. So, yeah, I think Henry Cavill, I want to see him in more stuff. You know, I just, I want to see him do more things. Um, I want to see him allowed him to, to get be more British. Action. Could we please let the poor that boy do great. his own like accent? Like James Bond? Maybe oh. we can make him James Bond next. 
Oh, goodness. I'm going to need to turn my air conditioner back on if we talk about that. So Seriously, can't you see him as James <laughs> totally? Bond? Because he, he can be car hard and cold, but we also know he can be charming because we saw him be Napoleon Solo. Exactly. So it's like he's mm-hmm. the perfect combination of like a Connery-type Bond and a Craig-type Bond put together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would love that. Mm. One thing about yeah. the whole arm thing, this is the way I looked at it. He showed that he was getting serious because he took off his jacket. Oh, yeah. But also, That's true. he, he didn't like, have right. time to roll up his sleeves. So he kind of jerks his arms out so that the sleeves mm-hmm. aren't causing tension anymore. And then he goes and pounds on some people. That's the way I took it. But I also thought it was okay. just every time I saw it in the commercial, I just went, mm, mm-hmm. I like that. Let's do it some more. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see those arms. It worked for me. All the women in the world were like, oh, please do that again. Please do that again. Yes. So everybody's got the gif. They just watch over and over, you know? So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Guilty. Yeah, he's... Um, And I really... I did like the moment where we get the reveal that he is... He's actually Lark, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a... It's such a cool thing because then you put all the pieces together like you know they don't have any living witnesses of the apostles because he kills them all the ones that he's you know killed uh instead of bringing in and all this stuff so you put all those and you're like okay it makes sense that he's the guy that they've been after the whole time and you know when he's talking to uh erica sloan he's literally describing himself and it's just it's such a great bit of irony that that's happened and so absolutely love him in the role and two, that's that moment when he's talking to Sloane is the reason that I suddenly went, oh, maybe it's not him. I didn't suspect for a second that he was lying. I immediately thought about what if it's true that Ethan has just gone too far the other direction, you know, and that, that this has become so much a part of his life that his good nature changes. And, you know, what if there's this side to him that we don't know? Um, So I like that they kind of make it easy for you to guess at that um, being possible. But I do love the reveal. Um, I thought that it was such a great moment that you don't expect for Simon Pegg to be the one in the chair. I expected it. Sorry. (laughs) Man, I must be dense. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, no, no. You have to understand that my whole life has been watching these kind of television shows, watching mystery television shows, reading mystery books, reading spy novels, etc. That has been my whole life. And so my brain has been trained to pick these things out. Okay. So it's not... It's not you know the commonality. I do. I do. And I just... I trust my gut. And that's why I... When when Walker was talking to Sloan and he was saying those things, I thought, well, he's obviously talking about himself because at this point, I fully trust in Ethan as a character, especially from the that sequence where he chooses Luther's life and Benji's life over keeping the plutonium. That's true. That's a whole other thing that I could talk about, but it's, it doesn't really, it's it's something that's just a conundrum that I can't solve, but... So at that point, I know that Ethan would never do these things. I just know. But it does cast that bit of doubt in Sloane's mind and and then in the mind of everybody else who doesn't know him as well. So, Mm -hmm. but I just, I did love that because I thought, oh, you, you are so good at this. It's no wonder nobody knows who you are or what you look like because you are so good at this. Wow. 
Well, and that's the thing that I really liked too about you know Angela Bassett's Erica Sloan is the fact that she she is this kind of um, you know authority figure above everybody, and her her goal is just to get this solved, and she doesn't really care who gets hurt and how it gets done. And there's this there's this whole side of her that's very much like Alec Baldwin was you know, in, um, you know, Rogue Nation when they're sitting there in, in the thing and he's talking about how, you know, this is the Kremlin before and this is the Kremlin after, you know, <laughs> Ethan Hunt got done with it. And so um, she is very much that type of character. And, and I think it's interesting because in a lot of ways there is a familiar pattern that happens in, a, in, in the Mission Impossible movies. We're basically going rogue, in a lot of ways, we're going to do what we have to do, and then we come back and everybody forgives us because we saved the world. And Ethan continually is having to win people over, and she's one of those people. She doesn't trust Ethan. She doesn't trust the IMF. She doesn't see the value in it um, at this moment. And I, I just I enjoy it. Angela Bassett commands every scene that she's in, even if she's on a cell phone. Um, and I just thought she was the perfect choice. And then it made for a nice little tiny arc for her to get to the point where she's like, okay, now I understand why Huntley bought into you and the IMF. Now I'm with you too. So you can do the things that, so I don't have to worry about them. So I just, I like, she was great. Oh, I love Angela Bassett. I loved her too. I, I did think it was ironic that she had a problem with Ethan when her whole um, moral compass is basically that the ends justify the means. Yeah. You know, she's like, yeah, that's the job. You're willing to die for us. And, but she's got an issue with Ethan. He's the good guy. <laughs> yeah. She's a, she's interesting because she's this unknown quantity when we first see her and we don't really know what she's about. And so when Walker tells her all this stuff about Ethan and gives her incriminating evidence, we really don't know what she's going to believe because she's playing it really close to the vest. And that, that is the beauty of Angela Bassett. She's just, she's a great actress and I love her in everything that I've ever seen her in. And I love what she did with that character and that duplicity and that you never really know which way she's going to tilt. Mm -hmm. until the very end so she's great even with how she plays the facial expressions oh, yes. to hide what's coming mm -hmm. i love that that moment with the phone call where you think oh okay good she's on their side she's bailing them out and she's gonna take walker in and then she goes oh i'm taking all of you in <laughs> yeah and you're going wait what yeah <laughs> you turned on us yep gather them all up and sort it out later yep yeah, I felt like that was a great moment because, again, it it continued to make her kind of an unknown quantity in the film. So you, you couldn't quantify what she was going to be or who she was going to be with at that point. And, and therefore, you didn't necessarily know how she might play into the rest of the movie either. So that was just a nice moment there. And the other part about it I think is smart. You know, McQuarrie just – he uses the people he needs to use at certain parts of the film – but he doesn't get too worried about bringing them back if he doesn't have to, you know? So, right. and I, you know, Vanessa Kirby, I uh, fell in love with on The Crown. She is just immaculate uh, in the role there as Princess Margaret. Um, but here, 
I will be honest. Uh, the first time I saw this movie, up until the point where Ethan meets Vanessa, Ethan meets the White Widow, uh, and they are having their conversation and the chemistry that's happening between them, the way it's being shot, everything about that scene was so good. That's what really flipped the switch where I was like, okay, this is a brilliant film. Um, because when the, the, there's just, there's something about her portrayal in that role. She's enigmatic. She's kind of weird. You know, she has this like evervescent side. There's something about her that's not quite normal, but you can't quantify it as like any w which way or another. And I, I just be kind of honest, it's kind of sexy. <laughs> like, so the whole scene yeah. is just this, there's this like, it's oozing with danger and, and like sexiness and like uh, suspense and all. I mean, and martinis. it's masterful. <laughs> yes, martinis. It's, it's masterful scene. And every scene that she is in, again, she kind of owns those scenes. Oh, I and um, I, I just really enjoyed her portrayal. And, and, you know, if they were to do another film, I totally want her back in some way, shape, and form because they, they've set her up as this kind of um, Switzerland in the sense like she doesn't have any allegiances, right? She'll just work for whoever because she's out for the money. Yeah, and, she's the broker. Uh, yeah. So I, God, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm gushing, but she was phenomenal. <laughs> no, I agree completely. I was hypnotized by her from the first moment that I saw her. And I thought if there was ever someone who could play Max's daughter convincingly, it is this woman. And in some ways, she she had little things that just reminded me a little bit of Max. Just just enough, mm -hmm. just enough to where you could see, yeah, that's Max's daughter. And I, the scene where they're escaping her private party, and she actually pulls out a stiletto knife and stabs one of the guys, and the look yeah. on her face is just, oh, I was in love. I was in love with this character, and I love the actress. She's she's brilliant. I really enjoy her. So I had never seen her before until this movie. Um, I've only watched one episode of The Crown. Um, so I, I was really impressed that they found someone that, to me, she even kind of looks like the actress that played Max. The eyes, especially. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you believe that she could be her daughter. Um, it's funny that they just kind of throw it out in her speech, um, that that's who her mother is. And two, I like what you said, Matt, that she feels very enigmatic is a good word. I also thought ethereal, um, it, like she's an angel and a ghost combined and, but she's also a human being. Um, she is very weird and, um, she really seems to command the room, um, but the thing that I liked the most was exactly what you were saying too, Brandy, that she has this tough side that you don't see until she's sparked off, you know, and then she stabs the guy with this knife that she had up her leg. I thought it was just, yes, do it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But I, I love too the reveal of her being just a broker because you keep thinking she's the seller. Um, so that was nice. And I mean, she really just is a, a great addition to the, the sort of dark side 
characters of these movies and i would definitely love to see her in another one of these if we get more yes yes for us with returning characters um obviously tom cruise is you know i i felt like watching this movie i was reminded of why we all love him and his films you know tom cruise may have had some strange moments we all have weird moments in our lives, right? You know, usually not that televised, but, you know. um, (laughs) He is just so good, though, at what he does. And he's so dedicated to it. And, and, and again, one of the reasons I I, I say listen to that episode, because when you hear about the partnership that he has with Macquarie, um, when you hear about how integral he is to helping figure out the story, he is integral in figuring out the action set pieces. He is dedicated to, uh, he told Macquarie, Hey, I want to learn how to fly a helicopter and I want there to be a helicopter chase in the, in this. So, um, you know, figure that out. Uh, <laughs> he learns how to fly a helicopter so he can do it all himself. You know, I think this is something that I, I was this movie reminded me of why we go to the movies and and why we like when they do it for real because every single thing that they're doing in this movie Tom Cruise is doing you know it uh, I was reading an article practicing and shooting 106 jumps out of an airplane to get what they did um, with the practice of it and then just just filming it to get it right. Um, they had to train a camera guy to do what they were doing because no camera guy knew how to shoot narratively uh, while Halo jumping. <laughs> so, I mean, like, this is the, the real stuff. Him flying the helicopter. So, again, it's all real. I just, uh, the, the car chases, the motorcycle chases, the running, the jumping over buildings, all real. All Tom Cruise being crazy. But on top of that, I think... Beyond that, there's there's real emotion, and 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 like when he you know sees Julia for the first time, um, and he's just everything going through his mind is awfulness, and his heart is just being crushed inside, and he's trying not to show it. Like that's amazing, um, you know his his seeing of um, uh, Ilsa again for the first time, and that kind of like shock on his face, like. Oh, hey, hey, you know, I just, it, um, I'm kind of gushing about Tom Cruise, but I'm just, I think <laughs> he is in a, a league of his own when it comes to what it means to be a movie star. Um, and I think what's also amazing about him is everything that I hear from behind the scenes is that he is just as nice and wonderful to everybody that he works with as, as you would hope, um, and he's just as giving and caring and um, dedicated as, as you would. And I just, I think, I don't know. I guess I'm, I should just be quiet now and let you guys talk. Because, uh, yeah, Tom Cruise is, is phenomenal in this movie. And who, oh, it's 56 nice years old. Yeah. He doesn't look like he's aged a day to me. And I have to say, I think that it, it, to piggyback on what you were saying, Matt, that the his biggest thing for me that's like my favorite thing about him now is that he was a producer on every single one of these movies. So from the first movie, it he's in the production credits. 
So I, I think that that's a big deal to be on both sides of the camera. You know, it, it adds so much more to a story to see it from the, you know, behind the camera trying to prepare everything the way that it should be. And then also being the lead character. Um, I think that it really makes him become Ethan Hunt more than anyone else could become their character. And then, too, with the emotion that he shows, especially with, you know, his now ex-wife, um, I think that that's huge because especially at the end when he sees her at the camp, it makes her heart hurt because he thinks it's all his fault that she's there and now thinking she's possibly going to die because of him, too. That's a lot on a person. I mean, I can't imagine anything more that you would need to make you just absolutely hate yourself, you know. Um, and I love what she says to him at the end. You know, no, it's because of what you do that I can be who I want to be. And I know that you're always looking out for me. I thought that was like the perfect thing for them to end on. So, yeah, I think that Tom Cruise is the only actor I would have chosen to play Ethan. And I think that him doing all of his own stunts too is just incredible, especially when there were this many, the rock scene on the rock face with Henry Cavill was my favorite of the entire movie. Yeah. Oh, there were so many favorites in this movie for me. Uh, this, this goes back to, I mean, him doing his own stunts. They made a big stink about him free rock climbing on dead horse point in Moab, Utah my my home state utah uh mm -hmm. and they didn't want him to do that because he had no he had no safety equipment there was no net below him he had on a harness yes but there was no net below him anything like that and the producers were like mm. and now now he has the power to just say no i'm doing all of this and it makes a difference it makes a huge difference and i have to say that i feel that this is probably the best action movie I have ever seen because it's all so real. It feels real. It doesn't feel like you're being tricked by camera angles or stuntmen or what have you. It all feels real because he's really hanging on the undercarriage of that helicopter and trying to get up onto one of the struts and falling down on top of the bomb. And, oh, oh, just, yeah, just, mm. It, it it created a tension in, in me that I haven't felt in a very, very long time, and I certainly haven't felt much as an adult, that at, at the end, when they're on the rocks, on the, on the cliff and fighting, I, I kept curling up further into myself physically. Yeah, you're like clutching your shirt yeah. going, oh, no. Oh, I was <laughs> doing this. But not only that, we were in luxury recliners, and so I was all, you know, laid oh. out and comfortable, and my knees kept getting further and further closer and to the point where I'm practically hugging them to my chest and I'm like so small in that seat and barely breathing. That is an amazing thing to be able to create that feeling in me from watching a movie. Oh, mm. it's just brilliant. And that is so much in part to the amazing stunts performed by actors. So it makes a huge difference. Well, and to say this movie is an edgier street thriller was was no lie. No, mm -hmm. I mean, I I was I I felt that t 
tension the entire time when I was talking about how I got to the end and you're just like, <gasps> you just feel breathless because you have, I feel like almost you've been holding your breath the whole time. Yes. Yeah. And you're finally going, because, oh, thank goodness they made it. <laughs> yeah. Because you, you, they bring you to the, they never let you go until that very last second when it goes white and you're like, did he make it? You know, and, and they, that's the only time they, they only release you then. Um, so the, the, the way they kept ratcheting up the tension and, and the, the action with Tom Cruise and him being so integral into that, it, 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 it makes a difference when you can see that the actor is doing yes. a halo jump from 25,000 feet. And flying, mm-hmm. and flying a helicopter. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because I know how yeah. helicopters actually operate. And whenever you see someone flying a helicopter, you just see him with the joystick. Oh, no. The, mm-hmm. This requires two hands, kids. One down yeah. here, one up here. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's wow. it's fantastic. So I'm really glad, you know, I, I you mentioned, Chrissy, that, you know, uh, Ving Rhames, uh, Luther has been in all the films. And I'm so glad that him and Benji were back because they're so much a part of the team. And I love that they each have, you know, different roles here. I feel like Luther kind of becomes more the heart and Benji's more of the comic relief in the film. Mm-hmm. And so I like the way that they're both used in that. Um, and they just have such fun roles. And there's nobody in this movie who's superfluous where you feel like, oh, they're just fan service. No, everybody has a specific reason for being there. And those two both have a very specific reason for being here. Um, even at the end, like you need all of these people there. Otherwise, it doesn't work, you know, like the world does blow up. Um, and so... Those two being back is so much fun. And just the the best part about them is they, they help humanize, you know, Ethan um, and the rest of the world around them in that, um, you know, so when they're, they, they, they do the whole reveal um, that, you know, it's, it's not really the world hasn't blown up, which I was like, oh my God, did they really just go there? Did they just blow up three right, like, different holy sites? Because he lost that case. And that's what happened. like, wow, this movie is getting dark, you know? And <laughs> and then it turns out that Simon Pegg's Wolf Blitzer, you know, you're like, oh yeah, my God, great. you know? like, But it's great because those two, especially Ving Rhames in that scene, he's selling it so well that you never don't believe you're you're in this situation. Like, it's and it makes them integral to the plot and so i just i'm i'm so glad that you know they've kind of found this very core team of tom cruise ving rames and and simon pegg's benji um and that those three it's like if you don't have them you don't have the imf team so it mm-hmm. they're great and i've got to add to uh, my favorite moment for each of them from this movie um i love that Luther becomes like you were saying the heart and you know not afraid to cry you know it it was nice Mm -hmm. having that moment when he's telling Ilsa about Ethan it was just so genuine and nice to see and for her to understand him on a deeper level um and then it I I love Simon Pegg not afraid to say it Um, I think that his best moments in this movie are that he is like a dog with a treat waiting to get a mask. (laughs) He's like, when do we get the mask? Do we wear the mask now? How about now? (laughs) It's so funny. Um, So I I think that he just, he adds so much to this team too. Simon Pegg, I think, especially with the reveal scene of of him being um, the villain, I, I think was just brilliant. 
because I, I didn't see it coming, even if Brandy beat me to it. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. No, it's okay. Um, you, you understand the commonalities, you know, you've seen the TV show too. And, and that's something that I need to get to now. Um, but I, I think that it's so nice having these three together again. And it, I did miss Jeremy Renner a little bit, but we had Alec Baldwin. So yeah, they, a quick side note, they said, you know, um, the reason Jeremy Renner wasn't in there is because, um, they had optioned him, obviously, for Avengers, mm-hmm. and they didn't use him. Because of the way this movie was put together, they didn't quite know what they would have Jeremy do. They offered him a part where he would sacrifice himself for everyone at the beginning, and he was like, mm, I don't want to do that. Um, and so they just didn't have him in the movie, which I think is a better choice. And, you know, I think then if they did make another one, you know, and they have a, a a part for him, you know, he can come back, you know, and there's, you can quickly dismiss why he wasn't there, you know, so mm-hmm. um, maybe he was running things back with, you know, because Huntley had, you know, so I just, it, it, it better not to waste a character, and, and that's True. the thing where I, where I was saying, you know, nobody is here by accident, everybody has a purpose, and I think that's so important in a movie like this, and like you said, you know, at Luther's moment where he's talking to Ilsa I don't know uh, I mean if you didn't get teary in that moment I kind of feel like you might not be human because mm-hmm. it's such a great moment of him and 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 that's the moment too where she realizes I think completely how much she loves Ethan as well it's like it's this whole thing that's happening in it. And then when he comes around the corner and they're both like, I'm not crying. You're crying. I mean, they're basically <laughs> doing that to Ethan fine. without actually doing it because they both have tears in their eyes. And he's like, is everything okay? Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Simon Pegg and, 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 and Ving Rhames are, are just phenomenal. Um, and, you know, of course, Ving Rhames getting the moment where he's also working with Julia, too. I thought was great. And and that's what makes her character so fantastic is that, you know, in Mission, uh, in Mission Impossible Rogue uh, Nation, Tom Cruise's uh, Ethan Hunt tells Simon Lane, Solomon Lane, that um, I won't let anybody in my team die. And that's what Solomon Lane then uses in this movie to attack Hunt to make that try to make that his Achilles heel and so having Michelle Moynihan's Julia there is such a it's a great payoff to this revenge plot um and that yes everything that he, everyone he cares about is in that valley and will die if they don't stop this you know um mm-hmm. and I, I just thought it was so well done to have her there, and I loved her interaction with uh, Luther, and I loved, um, you know, her her meeting her husband, you know, uh, who's who's in um, Yellowstone right now, and I loved finally getting the resolution of why they aren't together, which makes so much sense, and it it feeds into a theme we'll talk about in a little bit, but I just yeah, I I'm really glad that they had her back. I am too. I really enjoyed her and she is she's got a lot of guts that one because she basically finds Luther trying to disarm this one of the bombs and 
she is just immediately, how can I help? And he says, no, you, you should go. You should stay with your husband. She says, no, let me help. And he had even said before that he needed more hands. And so she was there and she was going to help. She was going to do whatever she could to help Luther, to help Ethan. To, she couldn't do what Ethan does. So she did what she could do. And that mm -hmm. takes a lot of courage because she could have just bagged and ran. But that's not Julia. Well, and I like to that she was like, uh, listen, if these go off, it's not like I'm not going to die anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so she was like, no, I'm going to do something. Yeah, yeah. I, I just really loved that about her. Really enjoyed her in this film. Well, I think we've reached the point of the podcast um, where we should talk about Rebecca Ferguson. Yes, please. <laughs> and I adore her. Um, I'm not afraid to say it, and I think the moment I think the moment I loved the most um it, it's a very small moment is when she whispers something to Julia as Julia's leaving. And in my head, what she says is, "I'll take care of him same hmm. I thought and the same that thing. Whole, yeah, and so that whole idea of them kind of, of this kind of passing the torch and and that the fact that they could have this life that him and Julia could not have because they're not in the same line of work, you know, because they are in this same line of work, they could have a relationship. Um there's I just feel like yeah, she just kind of whispers his name and I've got him, you know, and it's the the way that that character comes across and, and again something McQuarrie said he he they they were filming the scene where there's they're at the camp and he said by that point in the day in that valley where we're filming in New Zealand you have um five hours of daylight and we got to the point where we needed to shoot the scene where um Hunt is talking to Julia and her husband and the other three are over here. Um, we've got about eight minutes to get it done. I've got wow. to get coverage for everyone. And he needed her to get to this emotional place um, because she, he's, he wanted her to be the emotion in that scene that Hunt couldn't be. And he said he just walked her through the entire emotion of what's happening in that moment in Ethan. And she just did the whole spectrum of emotion and she wasn't happy with it because he it, it the next day because she felt like he was kind of making her too weak and he's like I'll never do that he's like I'll I'll take care of you I I'm never gonna let you be a man because I'm not interested in your character being a man um and I'm never gonna let you be a girl um you know and so the the woman that she is in these films I think is so powerful um and I don't I don't I'm kind of with Amelia Clark. I'm tired of hearing it's a strong, powerful woman, like, you know, like a strong character. Like the, She just is who she is, and she's confident in that, and she's not afraid to have these emotions and these feelings and everything that it means to just be human, not just a woman, but she's a human being. Um, mm -hmm. But she also is competent and capable and obviously can take out anybody you know, so she has all of these things and she plays it in such a way that 
It's just the way Cruz plays Hunt. There's a vulnerability there. There's a strength there. There's a hurt there. I mean, and it just... I love Rebecca Ferguson. That's all there is to it. So I do have to chime in and say that although I love Rebecca Ferguson and I love the character of Ilsa, I didn't want them to be in a relationship. So because I felt like they were so great as two equals working in the same field together, I wanted them to work together, but I didn't want them to lessen that relationship by being like, and then they fell in love and lived happily ever after. You know, it, so I, I did struggle a little bit with that ending as far as that goes. Um, but I do love that they sort of start with her back in previous movie um, looking out for him, even though she had no reason to. Um, he's going, who are you and why are you saving me from the place you brought me? <laughs> um, and then in this movie now, um, I love the scene where she thinks that that's how they're going to always be, where they look out for each other. And then he hits her with the car. The look on her face is just, she's stunned. I can't believe he just hit me. <laughs> like knocked me flat on the ground off my motorbike. <laughs> but he felt like, She'll understand she's not going to die and I've got a job to do. I'm going to get out of here. Um, so I, I love that. And I like that it, they're competing with each other even in this one where they have that scene when they're talking in the trees and she says, don't make me go through you. They both have the same end goal, but have different ways of getting there because she's trying to ingratiate herself again with MI6. And the only way she can do that is by killing Solomon Lane. And he's like, listen, I want to bring Lane to justice too, but this isn't the way to do it. So I, I like that paradox and that then it even brings it back to Max's daughter, the white widow talking about how much her mother loved a paradox. <laughs> Excellent point. Yeah. So I do love Ilsa as a character, and I, I love that she keeps him guessing all the time. My my feelings about Rebecca Ferguson, nothing but love. There's all the love. And you made an interesting point about not wanting them to be in a relationship, and I can certainly understand that. However, it wouldn't bother me because they've established these characters so strongly and what their strengths are that them having a relationship would not weaken either them either of them in my eyes mm -hmm. and that is just that's just because of the great way that they've written these characters and treated these characters and if they continue to do that if we get more uh then i don't think a relationship between them would be a problem it wouldn't demean anything about them to me because they're still human they still have feelings and if they want to have those feelings with each other more power to you you're not going to be they're not going to be less effective for that if anything you know it humanizes both of them more and they could both use a little bit more of that anyway so that well and now that he's not with julia anymore yeah he kind of you know needs someone in his life so i get that yeah and so but well, i'm not i'm not saying you're wrong i'm not saying i'm right yeah i'm just saying we had different ways of looking at it so, but mm -hmm. I can totally. This is the internet. Everybody, somebody's got to be wrong. Okay, <laughs> I, I'll be wrong. I I'm told that a lot. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I can take it. <laughs> I'm 
I'm a strong woman. I can take it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I I don't I don't think it um I don't think either has to be right. And I I do feel like one of the things uh for me in this was that and the thing that made me happy with the I I wanted them to be in a relationship since I'm I'm a shipper guy. I just I am I ship <laughs> people in movies. So, um, but I I loved their chemistry in Rogue Nation, and you could tell there was something more there. I felt like they really built on that. But the scene that really sold me on the idea that there is this hole in Ethan's life is when he's in Belfast, at the beginning, and he wakes up from the dream, and he's alone, and he's in and this he's like kind on of like, a cot. Yeah, he's in this big, big empty space, and so you you get this feeling of like his his life is empty between missions, you know, and and you you know that that's how hers is too, right? And so th- this this thought of them being able to be together and to bring each other joy that you know to enjoy the part of life that they're helping save every day, mm-hmm. you know, um, is is a nice thought like because everybody deserves a little love you know that maybe for one day they don't have to think about saving the world Mm -hmm. they can just spend time with someone yeah and and that you know in unlike julia she can help him save the world you know Mm -hmm. she can help him go on those missions because she's an asset in that you know and so um and i think that's the thing that's so fascinating about sean harris's solomon lane in this movie of that you know, he is dedicated this idea of the syndicate and bringing down the world order, but there is a very, like, this is where he kind of became the Bond villain. There's a revenge plot. There is that, like, Blofeld, like, I have to get back at Bond. It has to be Bond mm-hmm. kind of thing. And that's, I, I, I thought that that was great because, again, you know, he's been so good at trying to turn people's... um weaknesses into their fatal weakness and yet he has a fatal weakness which is what hunt's able to exploit which is he's going to want me there to see the end you know so i i just and and sean harris is so good and he's so maniacal in the role so really enjoyed that and i i really enjoyed when he got to play benji being him (laughs) yes you know and he just kind of ratchets up the tension level and the level of like, you know, mustache twirling that he's doing, and like, I don't know, he, it was great. He's he's a really really fun villain. I think I need to see him in more things because I think he's masterful at what he does in these movies. Which the scene where he's being Benji, being Lane, proves <laughs> that he is a master because it is very difficult to play someone else playing you. That is not something that everyone can do. It's like, okay, so you're being you, but you're being Benji playing you. Go. And he just does it. He just does Mm -hmm. it. He sucks you in so completely that you forget that there's actually a real man playing this part, and he's just Solomon Lane. He just embodies the character. So, so angry he's so angry at (laughs) ethan so angry because he's basically made himself into a god and now his kingdom is falling and it's ethan's fault and he will not have it so yeah he's uh he's kind of brought down by his own uh maniacal attitude with destroying 
the world order. It's like, well, actually, you're you're part of that world order because you're helping to create that world order. So you're really bringing right. down your own world order, but you can't figure that out because you're, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so details. Just it's about the plan. Yeah, so many details, <laughs> and so it, the irony of him trying to mastermind bringing down Ethan and it brings him down instead again again great foiled again great villain great villain love him hoisted by his own petard on his own petard well that too yeah there you (laughs) go yeah I love too the scene in the cabin where it's Benji and Ilsa against him oh wow that scene was so intense and Sean Harris really sold it that he has snapped. He's, you know, at first he's all confident and like, you're not going to stop it and, you know, ties her up and everything. But then he's got Benji too and he's trying to hang him while he's got her tied up. But then she gets loose and he's going, well, you still can't stop it. I, you know, it, it's already begun. And then when he finally sees that they are figuring it out and then he's tied up and face down on the floor, <laughs> yes. he throws like a little baby temper tantrum mm-hmm. when they stop the bomb. It was brilliant, yes. and and he is so good at playing this character. I, I would love to see him again, too. The cool thing about him is that he's not dead. Yay! You know, he is kind of like Blofeld in that way. Not necessarily gets away, but he's still always alive, you know? He's in the so, trunk of a car somewhere. Somewhere yeah. in England. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I gotta say, too, you know, Al Baldwin came in, and he was so good. You know, I mean, the whole twist thing and, you know, uh, oh, I've ruined your day. And then when he's like, oh, but you were doing so well up until that point. And then his death scene, I mean, it's just like the whole thing. You know, Alec Baldwin has this this kind of uh, tendency these days to kind of be more the comedian, but he used that to full effect in this mil- movie. And I just really enjoyed the performance. And I felt like, you know... um, and he even asked, he, you know, he thought that he should have a great death scene in this movie and they gave it to him. And, and, and it was, it's, it's a great scene, you know, like uh, because he went from being the guy who didn't believe in Hunt to being this guy who's willing to die for him in, in some mm-hmm. ways. And I just and, and die for the mission and really be a part of the mission. And like um, right before that, when he says, oh, my gosh, you know, I, I can see what you guys, uh, you know, kind of like this thing, you know, <laughs> it, it was uh He's, I'm going to miss him if they do another one, the fact that he won't be there. Yeah, his death scene definitely was impactful on the rest of them. I feel like that motivated them even more to seek justice for him. Because, I mean, you're right, they won him over. And then he's even out there, you know, like a kid with training wheels off of his bike going, look what I did. And they're going, good job, buddy. Um, So it, it, it was nice the way that, that Alec portrayed him. And honestly, I'm going to gush here and say, I don't know if there's anything Alec can't do. (laughs) He is so great at doing the drama. I don't know if you saw a movie he did a while back uh, with Anthony Hopkins about a grizzly bear, but it was really good. I don't remember exactly what it was called, but I know which one you're talking about. And I have not seen that one. Not either. Yeah. Oh, you need to it again. Good for Alec Baldwin doing drama. Um, But he, and then he can play the comedy and be the silly guy too. So he's just really great. And and especially as Huntley, I feel like he makes you believe that 
he's now on their side and he's going to defend them literally to the death. Yeah, I feel like we didn't get a proper grieving time for Hunley because right after that, Ethan's out the door chasing down Walker, Lark, whatever you want to call him. And we don't really get that time to go, but but because it's just the movie just moves on. Kind of like mm-hmm. life just moves on. The way I feel about his performance is it reminded me, I wasn't a carbon copy of, but it reminded me of the same spirit of combining drama and comedy as he did as Jack Ryan in The Hunt for Red October. Because he is still my favorite Jack Ryan. And he only did the one film. <laughs> but he was my... Oh, he's a he was great. He was great as Jack Ryan. And I feel like he's channeling that same sort of balance. He... It's Mm -hmm. not like I'm watching Jack Ryan playing Hunley. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that he channeled that particular balance again to play this character, and it just worked so well. And I I was sad to see him go. I was really thinking, oh, it's a stab wound. He'll probably be okay. And then Benji's shaking his head, and I'm like, wait, no. No. This is not how this is supposed to go. What is going on here? Okay, he's dead, and now Ethan's chasing down. Okay, can you just give me a moment? Please? Mm -hmm. No, no moment given. <laughs> so, Oh, I did figure yeah. out what movie it was, by the way. I was thinking of The Edge from 1997. Oh, right. yeah. Okay, yeah. I knew what you're talking about, but I um, I had not, I've not seen that one, so. Go watch it. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about this movie was that it has this neat theme about the needs of the one and the many and how Ethan won't sacrifice one for the lives of many, you know, like it, and Huntley does such a great job of explaining it. There's some flaw deep in your core core that won't allow you to sacrifice the one for the, for the millions, you know, and, and that's your greatest strength. And I, I thought it was such a, I think it's a really timely message. Actually, this idea of that, we should think of the one, and the many. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's usually by how we treat the one um, that is really the most important. You know, um, how are we going to treat the most vulnerable of us? How are we going to treat the one that's right in front of us um, before we think about the millions? You know, and it's it's by having a care and respect and love and, and seeing that one other person as a human being that is worth saving, that is worth treating like another human being, um, that makes all the difference. And I just, I, I was like, in a world that's full of like social media angst and people just being awful towards each other, and because we're not seeing each other as human beings, what a beautiful message that for Ethan, he sees each individual that he comes in contact with as worth saving you know worth the time and attention worth his life and what a what a beautiful like kind of almost you know i hate to say it christ-like type message of that for everyone ethan is willing to put his life on the line um even if it's the bad guy right like mm-hmm. um you know he 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 he's not always intentionally trying to kill the bad guy he's just trying to stop the bad guy you know he will he will if he has to but that's not always the first thought um and i just so beautiful because you as we mentioned earlier julia talks about how you know ethan then is a blessing in her life and how even though it it did not end up working out for them because 
they together made a decision that Ethan's life needed to be doing what he did best, which is saving the world. He helped make her who she is and that the impact that you can have on the one life. Like both of those things together were just such beautiful themes that I was like, oh my gosh, this is so great to see in this movie. It was unexpected to be sure. I wasn't thinking there was going to be this deeper level underneath everything and that it would be kind of Star Trek in nature with the goods of the many outweigh the goods of the few or the one. And I love the way that they presented it. And that takes me back to that whole scene where they lose the plutonium. Because I think about it, and at at first I'm thinking, okay, that was really a rookie mistake for Ethan to leave that case of plutonium laying on the ground, run around the corner and start shooting people. Why didn't he grab the case and then start shooting people? But then what happens after that? They're going to kill him for the plutonium, or maybe they just kill the rest of his team because Lane still wants him to be there at the end to pin all of this on him so they can't kill him. So then he still loses all of his team. And he's going to lose the plutonium. So really, there was no way out of this where he kept the plutonium in my particular, you know, viewing of the events. And I don't think he did the wrong thing. I feel like he did the right thing in saving his team. Because those people will also help him save the world. And they are his friends. And they would have done the same for him. It's that level of commitment and friendship and and love, really, that makes this world a better place, especially when that's the team that's saving millions of lives because he didn't let them die in that underground whatever the heck it was. <laughs> it's like parking garage? It wasn't really a parking garage. Tunnels? Anyway. So I feel... Catacombs. Like, catacombs, yeah, kind of like catacombs. And so there's, there's this whole thing, I mean, yes, from a math perspective... The good of the many outweigh the good, uh, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. But that's not the way the world works. That's not the way Mm -hmm. our hearts work. It's not the way love works. And I thought the same thing. I thought that was a very Christ-like thing to do, even though I don't identify as a Christian. I have respect for Christ and the teachings of Christ, because do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Really, if we all followed that one rule, we wouldn't need any others. We really wouldn't. So it's it was a beautiful message that was underlying everything in this film that I didn't expect. And the integrity that Ethan has to stick to his plan of not killing Lane and letting him face justice to the very end. Just, mm, wow, integrity. You don't get to see it very often these days. Yeah, I echo everything that you said, Brandy, and and absolutely, I think that Ethan's biggest strength is that he has a moral compass that he will not give up no matter what, and and that's what makes you have faith in him to the end, and that, you know, he's not going to kill off Lane, even though he has many chances, that, you know, that that's not how someone should do it, you know, it's not the right thing to do. And I like, too, that that whole scene where Luther gets, you know, in the middle of everything and he has to shoot him in the vest um, to make it look real so that he can save him. Um, You think about, too, if Ethan had made the other decision and 
let something happen to Luther, could he live with himself anymore? You know, no, because he has these morals that he takes with him that define him. He would go absolutely insane because a, it was his closest friend, really. I mean, they've been together on every mission and then B it's, it's just another person that he would care about the one person and it would shake him to his core if he let something happen to someone knowingly. I mean, even that female cop. Oh, yes. Yes. You know, oh, that, yes. It, that situation, I love the decision making that he makes just split second to save her. Um, it, and he didn't have to and she was possibly going to shoot him. Um, so I, I love that this film ends up having this big moral message even though you don't expect it from an action movie. So I, I absolutely agree that I think that it was great that they did this and, and that they can say you can look out for the one and the many at the same time. So true. Well, and, and I thought, you know, it's interesting because you can't set aside everything that you believe in to do what you have to do to win and still accept to truly, expect to truly win. Mm-hmm. You and you know and like you guys are saying that you know and it ties into something that you know, uh, Lane says that he believes it's this pathetic morality to which you know people like Ethan hold on to that are keeping this old order in power and how governments are descending into chaos and it seems like it's more that it's the lack of morality that's getting us into this problem and not the pathetic nature of the morality because we are sacrificing things that intrinsically we just know to be true for what power or money or you know greater prestige or you know um and all of these things and it's just this message of of not doing that of looking at what is truly important which is each other and the idea of working to save each other and to to be there for each other and to put our lives on the line for one another, um, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, who knew that, you know, Mission Impossible Fallout could have been called Mission Impossible the Golden Rule. <laughs> you know, right? I mean yes. so it it's it's so beautiful that that that's the case. And and I just What's beautiful about it is that you have a hero and you have a set of heroes that are unwilling to give up their morality to save the world. And isn't that important for us to remember as well that we can't give up the very things that which we are fighting for and expect them to be there when we're done. Mm-hmm. So it's true. just not going to happen. So I, this movie talking about that I think is is pretty brilliant. Uh, and again, I think it's really timely. Um, and encapsulated in all of that thematic element is action, 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 which I, I mean, is this the best action movie you've ever seen? I, I think maybe that's the best way to tackle this because we can't talk about every single action sequence. But I, I was left with that question. Is this the best action movie you've ever seen? It is for me. It would take a lot to top this because everything was so realistic. And where else are you going to get a helicopter chase? That was amazing. I loved that so much. Just every single 
chase anything. It's like, oh, well, we're going from a car chase to a motorcycle chase. And then, and I, but it never felt like, oh, when is this going to be over? When are we going to wrap this up? It was always just left me breathless, wanting more, wondering what was going to happen next. I loved mm-hmm. all of the action in this film. I felt like nothing was wasted. Nothing was over the top. It was all so real. Again, that's what made it work for me. And so in that respect, it was, it is the best action movie so far that I have ever seen. Yeah, I, I think I would agree. I can't say enough good things about it. It really didn't have any drawbacks for me. I think the thing that it's so important, and, and I would say that, um, you know, J.J. Uh, Abrams does a pretty good job of this as well, is that his action also tells parts of the story. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's telling story. And so I feel like the action here uh, isn't just action for action's sake. It's it's telling the story, you know. So uh, as, as you learn so much about who Ethan Hunt is as he's running across buildings and, you know, flying out windows and, you know, all these things... Because you're seeing the tenacity of what this character is willing to do to try and save the world, you know, put their body on the line, literally, by jumping, uh, you know, from building to building, even if he might might not make it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. That wouldn't and, hurt me. You know, I, yeah, uh, well, and Tom Cruise broke his ankle, so. Yeah. Um, oh, not surprised. Jumping from the window onto the roof. Ah, yes. I'm jumping out a window! And all those people just looking at him like, what in the hell is going on? Well, sorry, I had it in 2D mode. Oh, Oh, yeah, that was great. Sorry, I had it on First it was the wrong direction. Yeah, oh my god. Yeah. So, I think that everybody should say what their favorite action scene was. I already gave mine away. It was the rock face. And I love that talking about fan service, we get to bring back Ethan's rock climbing skills Mm -hmm. and have him jump from the cable to grab a hold of the rock face. And that was Walker's downfall. Okay, well, if I have to pick one, and I am really bad at picking favorites of anything. Anyone who knows me will know this. I have very few things (laughs) that I raise above all others. But I have to say, I think my favorite was him running across all the rooftops to catch up with Walker. Because he just keeps going. And and even my husband said, man, I he just must be a machine because about a third of the way through that, all the lactic acid in my muscles would have been kicking in and I would just be down for the count. You just have to stop and go. <sighs> yeah. But he just keeps going. He just keeps going. No matter what happens to him, he gets up and he keeps going. And that kind of physical stamina is just impressive i know they didn't film it all in one go but even but it so felt like it, it felt like it it was done so well and even the stuff that they did film all in one go that was long and it looked like it was painful in some situations and it just kind of blew me away because i thought oh well he'll just he'll come back down and he'll be running through the streets again oh no oh no across all these rooftops and jumping out windows it was amazing it's hard, um, honestly, I like them all, but I think the Halo jump for me, when uh, I, especially when I read about how difficult this was and that there are only three cuts in that scene. What? Um, so that they stitched together, I mean, a- out of all of the different takes, they stitched together three different cuts. Oh, my goodness. Um, and, they're, and they're so well hidden that you don't realize it's not a full, you know, because they, they do... I think um, it's when 
uh, Macquarie said it's when uh, two of them are the lightning strike is one, mm-hmm. so they cover it up with that, and then um, there's one where it's he bumps into you know he catches up with um, Henry Cavill's character uh, Augustus Walker, and so um, those are two of the places that they hid the cuts you know Mm. so just it's a masterful scene though and the fact that tom cruise is doing all that is just ridiculous yeah because that sounds like torture to me (laughs) i don't ever want to jump out of a plane Twenty-five thousand feet no you know yeah Um, but don't you love it when they land and he goes looks like you lost your oxygen yeah it's just just one to punch him in the throat at that point you jerk oh yeah Don't worry, he gets punched in the throat in the bathroom. So I know, well, and I, I think that. <laughs> yes, and and I think that's the other scene to me. The that bathroom fight scene is one of the most visceral, yes. well choreographed fight scenes I've ever seen. And then, of course, her shooting him in the face, and then mm-hmm. the whole joke about you know I need a face to make right. A mask. Like he doesn't have just, one. Yeah. Um, that whole thing is just, it's so good. So, and who um, would have ever thought that you'd say my favorite was the bathroom fight? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. No poo thrown in this fight. Uh, yeah, thank God. No. what did you guys think about like the production and the music and everything? Um, for me, I, I would just say right up front, it, you know, Skyfall is probably one of the best looking action movies ever filmed because Roger Deakins is a fantastic DP. Um, but I felt like the look of this movie and the way it was shot, the everything about it, it ranked right up there with one of the best shot action films of all time. Just it looks so good. Agree completely. I have to agree. Uh, I I think that that in particular stood out to me. Um, again, with the rock face, with panning across while he's hanging on, um, is brilliant and makes you feel the weight of how much there is below him, how far he could fall. You're going, oh, oh, (laughs) because I'm afraid of heights. So that's really terrifying for me. Yeah. (laughs) Brandy's right there with Mm -hmm. me. It's Um, it's not the heights that's falling from them and that at the end that I don't care for. Okay. Yeah. And the dying part. The dying part. Not a fan. (laughs) And I I think too. You don't always die. Sometimes you just get severely injured. Yeah, well. Right. Pop that rock cliff Just face. a flesh yeah, wound. Dead. You're dead. <laughs> <laughs> but too, when how they shot all of the scenes, even in where they're technically underground or in these tunnels, there was still enough light that they're using when they're lighting the scenes, um, which has been my big complaint with the Marvel TV shows. Um, that you you know you can't see always what's going on because it's so darkly lit. So I, I like that this was in a dark place, but it was lit well enough to where you could still see what was going on when they wanted you to, and then make it look like they cut the lights at that one moment with Henry Cavill too. Um, so yeah, I have to, I have to give it up to them for how things were shot. I think the camera work was part of what made it so great. Yeah, I feel the exact same way because filming of a movie is so much more important than people give it credit for. And so your director of photography has to be top notch to do what Macquarie envisioned with this film. I feel like there are so many action movies that do the freaking shaky cam and I hate that. Ugh, I know. That is cheating. If you cannot bring me the drama and action of the scene without shaking the camera, 
then you are failing. I don't recall seeing shaky cam once in this film. And if there was shaky cam at any time, it wasn't to the point where I went, oh, shaky cam. I could see everything clearly, which made it all, again, so much more real, so much more visceral, which made it so much more believable, so much more intense. I can't give enough props to everyone who worked on the filming portion of this film because it is mind-blowing how perfectly it's done in every scene, every scene. Just, I wish they would get nominated for Oscars. I, you know, I, I think, you know, this, this movie definitely from the look of it and the way it was shot, I think it's got a chance. Um, music is really important in the Mission Impossible movies. You know, the theme is iconic just as the Bond theme is. Um, and I have to say, you know, for me, Rogue Nation, I love Joe Kramer's work in that one. So I'm wondering, and um, Michael Cicchino did three and, and uh, Ghost Protocol. Um, so I'm kind of wondering what you guys thought of the music in this movie. Because it definitely had a different flavor. I have to say, I didn't really notice it. I think, and I think that's a compliment. And I've said it before on other episodes of 602 Club. I think that a really good um, score and soundtrack for a movie is something that fits so well with the action that it doesn't immediately stand out to you, but that they still use the Mission Impossible theme where it's appropriate, um, you know, it, it, at high action points. Um, but I think that it it fit well, I guess, is my compliment that I want to give to it. But I... I don't necessarily think, oh, I need to go out and buy this so that I can listen to it on its own. I may be the dissenter in this group because I I don't know if it was because when we saw it, maybe the sound was turned up a little too loud, but I found the music to be very oppressive and heavy and dark. And yes, that fit the tone of the movie, but there were times I was just like, could you please turn this down just a couple of notches because <laughs> I am now starting to notice the music and I shouldn't be noticing the music. I don't necessarily think that that was a failing of the film itself or the composer. It may have just been the sound system at the theater in which we saw it, which was one of the nice theaters with the good sound system. I just think it was turned up too loud because the previews were too loud as well. And usually when the previews are too loud... The movie itself is fine, but that wasn't the case. It was like they just turned that knob up to 11 and walked away. So <laughs> so for me, I, I would have to see it again with in, in a place where the sound wasn't up so high to really determine if it was the music itself that bothered me a bit or whether it was the volume of the music. So I can't really say for sure, but I felt really weighed down by it in some places. Not to the point where it uh, interfered with my enjoyment of the film, because until you said something about music, I had forgotten all about it. So there we go. For me, the music feels very much akin to a Hans Zimmer type score. My husband said the same thing. The, um, and not that I, I love Hans Zimmer and his work, but for me, um, Mission Impossible always feels a, lit, a little like it should feel more like John Barry almost like, like with the Bond and, and I think Joe Kramer did a really good job of that and Michael Giacchino I think did as well 
uh, for the most part, too, of creating that kind of feel. I think that, uh, and I, Macquarie said in the interview, he said one of the things that he wanted if he was going to do another one is that he needed this to feel like a different movie and a different director. And part of that was getting a different DP, uh, a director of photography, and also not working with the same composer that had done the rest of the movies that he had worked on. So it was a conscious choice to do mm. something different. Um, so I I don't feel like it works quite as well. Um, I was talking good friend John Mills, and he said, you know, to, to him, the music felt like it fit in the movie, but it's not necessarily one that you would buy the soundtrack for and really enjoy it. And I have the soundtrack, and... It's it's just not. I mean, I can listen to Rogue Nation anytime, anywhere. That soundtrack is great, but um, this one not not as much. It just it's not as enjoyable to listen to. It just doesn't work the same. Like I love Zimmer's scores for like you know his Dark Knight trilogy. I I think he did a great. I literally loved his Man of Steel score. You know where it is kind of more driving. You know the percussion and everything. I just feel like that works a little bit better for those type of films than it does for Mission Impossible, which already has its own kind of soundscape, I think, for the most part, especially with the last, like, I would say, since 3 really has a sound. So lastly, before we get to the ratings, I know this is a longer show, but I want to ask you guys a question about the future because the way that this movie ends, Tom Cruise is 56, do you want more, or do you feel like this is a good capstone to where you say, you know what, you did six films, I don't know how you top that, go out on top? I feel like inevitably they're probably going to go, this one was so great and so successful, we've got to do another one. But me as a fan, I think that this is a good place to stop because, I mean, it, just thinking about the plot itself as far as it's come across the six movies and then this one alone even, I don't see where else you could go from here. I mean, they've really tied up him finding someone new, Julia finding someone new and living her life. Um, I guess you could do something where you're exploring what happens with Luther and Benji. Um, but, it, you know, I mean, Walker got killed off. Um, Huntley got killed off, so I just don't see where else you would go with it. Um, so I, I think that they should stop with this one, but I don't think that they will. <laughs> I would be fine either way, because uh, part of me feels like, yeah, I'll be okay if they don't do any more. But the other part of me goes, get Tom Cruise back in there as long as he can do it. Because there will come a time when he is not physically able to do this anymore. And I want, I kind of am curious to see what Ethan is like when he's been released from that burden of guilt over Julia. I want to see how he approaches things, how, how that changes him. But I'm a student of the human mind and heart, so I, I enjoy things like that. Would it make a good movie? I can't say that it would, but I think that if they do another movie... Well, Tom Cruise is really just improving with each one. So I can't say that I would be adverse to having another movie, but neither would I be upset if they stopped here. So it really works either well, way. Well, too, I feel like 
this was such a good film and I feel like we're all kind of on the same page with it. You don't want them to then do the next one and it jump the shark and be a flop and end on that note. You know, I feel like this is, you know, going out on top if they stopped here. True. And I understand that. I just, this, this particular series of movies is unlike anything else in pop culture that I can think of comparatively where you've got six movies in a, in a series of with the same character, the same main character throughout, and the same storylines following this character, and each one gets better than the last one. So, I it's it's kind of like uncharted waters here. I don't know if they could top this. It is possible. I didn't think mm-hmm. that they could ever come back after those first three movies. I didn't think that I was ever going to watch another Mission Impossible movie. And yet there I was convinced to watch four and drawn right back into it, much to my delight. So I just, I could, I, again, I'm, I guess it may seem like I'm being wishy-washy, but I'm really fine either way. I have faith that they could do something interesting that would do well if they so desired and if they took the time to really figure out what would be appealing, but I'm also fine with them stopping here. So there you go. Not picking a side. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I kind of understand where both of you are coming from. And, you know, I, I would, I'll, I'll say, you know, seven is a really good holy number, right? You know, it's a good <laughs> round number. A prime, um, number. prime number. Yeah, there you go. So I, uh, and I think if they do what they did with this one, where it's they're not rushing to get it out, they are, you know, they take their time. And, you know, three years later, Tom Cruise is 60, you know, so, uh, around that point, you celebrate that by releasing. Uh, I could see them maybe doing one more and and trying to make that the kind of like a nice send off, you know, um, with all of the characters. So... But at the same time, I, I see exactly what you're saying, Christy, where it's like this movie does such a great job of kind of leaving it in such a beautiful place. Uh, you know, there is this nice culmination of everything that's kind of happened to Ethan Hunt. And, you know, now he is in a place where he has his friends, he has a new love, you know, that looks like will last forever. And, you know, he's accepted now by not just uh, the... IMF but the CIA you know and so like there's that 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 story that's been playing out for over and over and over again so I don't know it, it's I am torn I feel like I I yeah I'm definitely torn uh and and Christopher McQuarrie said it himself you know he, he he said with you know Rogue Nation well the next guy that comes in is just effed you know just totally and it turned out to be him <laughs> And he, you know, um, and now he, he, you know, he's saying again, you know, I can't, uh, the poor, you know, bastard that comes after me, you know, and, and it could be him again, you know, he doesn't know. So, mm-hmm. um, I would say this too, the way that Macquarie did this film, I, if they're going to do another one, I would want him to come back with Tom and then make that a trilogy and then be done. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if, if that's the case, they do another one. It's like it would be hard to trust anybody else with the quarry at this point. Um, so, mm-hmm. which I, I guess leads us to ratings. 
And so um, I think I know where we all are, but I'll be interested to see maybe how high the scale goes. Brandy. (laughs) I've been thinking about this for a little while because I knew we were going to get to this point. Uh, I think it's no secret that I really loved this film and found it to be remarkable in many ways. So I would have to give it 10 out of 5 Benji finally in a mask. So 10 Benjis out of 5 Benjis finally in a mask. <laughs> wow, so it's it's like the best rating ever. Yeah, it's uh it's, like, it's definitely it's the best action movie I've ever seen. So there you go. Drops the mic. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Christy? Uh yeah, I I feel the same pretty much. I I would give it a I'm giving it a 9 out of 10. Um, hmm, what to rate with? White Widows since we're going with people. Um, and I loved her so much. The only reason I deducted 1 point was because my feeling about her uh, you know, Ilsa and Ethan ending up in a relationship. I'm still kind of like, maybe I'll change my mind if I see it again. Um, But it it had so many things that were brilliant about it. Like we said, talking about how it was shot, about Tom Cruise doing all his own stunts. I mean, I don't know how much longer the man is going to be able to go, but let's keep it going as long as we can because we're enjoying what we're getting. Um, and flying a helicopter and Henry Cavill. I, I had a friend who said, um, Henry Cavill's mustache was glorious. And I said, Henry Cavill's everything is glorious. <laughs> Every bit of him. This we got to throw that out yeah. there. Um, and, and like I said, the, the white widow, I think was my favorite new character because she's so mysterious and interesting and sly. Um, I think is the best word to describe her. So I, I would like to see more of her if we could. But yeah, so nine out of 10 for me. Yeah, this, I mean, uh, when I did my written review, this is five out of five stars, which actually equals just one Rebecca Ferguson. So, um, you know, I there is no higher rating. Um, and it, it I I do think this is most likely the best action movie I've ever seen. Um, you know, there's been great action movies coming to mind actually is, you know, like the matrix where you're just blown away by everything that's happening, but there's something about this movie because it's all real, you know, and, um, it's the beauty of movie magic coming to life. And I will say this too, go see this movie on the biggest freaking screen you possibly can because they utilize, especially in many of the action sequences, the IMAX cameras. So you really do feel immersed in those big chase sequences and and especially that helicopter chase sequence, things like that. They really make that work. Um, So yeah, this is a fantastic movie and I've adored getting to talk about it with both of you tonight it's it's been so fun um and i really appreciate the associate producers that we have here through patreon ken trip davis grayson daniel noah fantastic gentlemen who have been supporting this network uh for a long time and the show for a long time so thank you of your support of trek fm and the 602 club uh this is a massive network and there's absolutely no way that we can do it on our own so Go to patreon.com slash trekfm. 
and you can see how you can be part of the team. We have many different contribution levels you can give at, but honestly and truthfully, every little bit helps. And uh, it's been tight for us in the last few months, so if you can help us out, we'd really appreciate it. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Ladies, thank you so much for making this uh, just an incredible evening for me to sit down and talk with you about this movie. I hope the listeners enjoy it. You both are Rebecca Ferguson's all of your own. But um, where can you be found? Christy, let everybody know where they can find you. Sure. So you can find me on um, my personal Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell, B-E-L-L-E. And then I also um, am frequently here, of course, on 602 Club talking about Bond and um, all of our other geek topics. And then um, I'm also co-hosting Galactic Fashion with my friend Teresa Delgado. And you can find us on Twitter at Galactic Fashion and Instagram at Galactic Fashion Pod. Awesome. So make sure you are checking all that out because uh, Christy and Teresa definitely stay on top of the geek fashion world, which I appreciate. So I know exactly what I should be buying from her universe. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, Brandy, uh, uh, you are around the network and everywhere else. So if people want to talk some Mission Impossible or anything else that's going on in the geek world, since you are uh, just a plethora of geek joy, because you like so many different types of geek I things. Do. <laughs> uh, where can people find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Brandywine12. Brandy is with an I and 12 is the number. You will find me lurking in the Babel Conference, kind of like a shark swimming just under the surface of the water. Sometimes I'll put my fin up, sometimes I won't. But I'm always watching. Uh, I will join in on a conversation if, if, the, if someone, you know ats me or what have you and uh, you can find me on warp five on trek fm with my good friends brandon shamotella and patrick devlin brandon's on a bit of a hiatus right now but he will be back eventually and someday when season two of discovery starts again i'll be doing live from the edge with my good friend bruce gibson i miss that show so much being live is very interesting because both bruce and i have improv backgrounds so we are never afraid to just not have a script and realize that everything we say is how it's going to go out as a podcast the next day. <laughs> so you can find me all of those many places. I also do a podcast with my husband, Dave, called The Dark Corner Podcast, which you can find at darkcornerpodcast.com. And we talk about all sorts of geeky, wonderful things and basically whatever we like, but sort of from a darker point of view, from the darker side of the street, if you will. Uh, there are colorful metaphors in that. So please do not let children listen. I just realized that, you know, that song, Brandy, always watching me. <laughs> That's where that comes from. I, it makes so much sense now. So, okay. Damn. All right. Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Matt Rushing02, and Instagram under the same name. Apparently, always being watched by Brandy. Yeah, it's good to know. Um, and uh, <laughs> you can also find me here on the network talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine with Chris Jones on The Orb. We've got a brand new episode dropping soon, so make sure you check that out. Um, I'm over on the Nerd Party Network talking about Harry Potter on Owl Post with Drea Kaufman. 
We go one chapter at a time. We are in the middle of the Goblet of Fire right now. It is so much fun. And as we're recording this tonight, and then nobody cares, but it's actually Harry Potter's birthday, uh, July 31st, as well as J.K. Rowling's. So happy birthday to J.K. Rowling uh, and to Harry Potter. Uh, and then I do uh, aggressive negotiations with my aforementioned friend earlier in the podcast, John Mills, a fantastic gentleman, um, where we get to dive into um, everything Star Wars. We love Star Wars, and we're just two guys sitting down talking about it. It's a blast, so I hope you'll check that out. And then last but not least, doing cinema stories with my good friend Courtney as we talk all about films, but through the lens of faith. So thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now here.